and avoid at the moment. Um, way back in the distant mists of time when I, was, um, when I was a student down in Canterbury many years ago, just after I'd finished being a student and I'd uh, first got a job down there, um, I took a young lady out on a date. And it was the first time, because I'd just started working, it was the first time I actually had any money. So for the very first time ever, I took her to a restaurant for a meal. And it was a nice little restaurant I'd found in a little village just outside of Canterbury. I'd researched it well, found one with a good menu, something that looked it was, it was going to be a nice place to have a romantic meal. And so we got a taxi there. We arrived at this restaurant, which was very quiet, it has to be said, and we went to the bar. And there was a young guy behind the bar in a pair of ripped jeans and an old T-shirt who greeted us as we came in and offered us a drink. Um, there was no one else in the restaurant at all, which was interesting. But anyway, we sat at the bar for a few minutes and had a drink. And uh, then we went over to our table in the restaurant and there was still nobody else there. It was just us. And this chap with the ripped jeans and the T-shirt from behind the bar came over to us at our table as well and gave us our menus. And I was starting to get a little bit worried at this stage. Um, and so I tried to make light of the situation and said, oh, you're not very busy here tonight, are you? And he said, uh, no, you're the only people in here. It's like, oh, fair enough. And uh, I then uh, tried to fathom who else was about and said, well, it's not often you obviously have more staff on duty than you do customers. And he said, oh, no, no, we haven't got more staff on duty than customers. He said, you, you still outnumber me. It's just me here tonight. At which point, the young lady I was with turned to me and gave me a look which I knew meant, I know you're a bit of a cheapskate, but you could have at least brought me to a restaurant where they've actually got a chef here. <laughs> Fortunately, it turns out this guy was a very good chef, and he did go out and he changed into his chef's whites, and he gave us a lovely meal, and we had a great time. And if we'd have ended up getting married as a result of that, that would have been a brilliant story to tell at a wedding reception. But as it is, it's just going to be a sermon illustration. <laughs> <laughs> there are certain expectations of some people and the kind of jobs that they do. If you get injured in some way or you fall ill and you rock up at West Middlesex Hospital in the A&E department and you want to get treated by someone, you expect to have somebody with a modicum of experience, a modicum of medical experience, and some training there to do you. If you go to a dentist, which I've got to go next week and have a tooth extracted, you expect that there's going to be a fully qualified dentist there, not Bob the Builder with his drill there. In fact, we're going to take that picture off because that's disturbing me incredibly. Um, um, Sometimes we find that there are people who are perhaps in the wrong job. This is a great picture of the Manchester United forward line at the moment uh, with someone who's perhaps not quite in the right job there. You ever get that feeling? We expect people to have some experience, to have some training, to be doing the kind of job that they're going to be doing. We've arrived at this part of Mark's Gospel now this morning that we've just heard read to us um, from Noel. And this is the point where Jesus is deciding that the good news is going to be spread around the villages around Galilee. He's been going around with the disciples up to this point, telling the good news, but he's decided that at this point he's going to send out 
those around him to go and spread the good news on his behalf as well. So who does he choose to send out? Well, it tells us in our text, it's very helpful. It says he sends out the 12, the 12 disciples or the 12 apostles, as they're sometimes called. But who is this bunch of people? Are these the people that we think are going to be out there spreading the good news, taking this message out to the world? Are they the people that you'd have chosen to send out? Are they the people that I'd have chosen? Well, we've probably got at least four fishermen, which although it was a noble profession, they were probably pretty rough sorts, these fishermen here. So we had at least four fishermen there. We had a guy that was called a zealot, which means that he was a revolutionary. He was wanting to oust the Romans, probably by violent means. The zealots often carried weapons around with them in case they could do a bit of damage to some of their Roman occupying force if they came across them somewhere. Uh, we had someone... <coughs> uh, we had two people who had nicknames. They were nicknamed the Sons of Thunder, and they probably didn't get that nickname from being meek and mild and very nice to be around. And we also have people who would then doubt Jesus, and we also had someone who we know would eventually betray him as well. They'd go on to doubt, they'd go on to argue with Jesus, they would go on to, go on to misunderstand the things that he had to say. Eventually they would go on to betray him as well. You've got Judas Iscariot there who looked after the money bags uh, for the, the money, the wealth that the, any, that the disciples had as they went around. And it tells us in the Gospels as well that he was uh, also keen on dipping his hand in from time to time and lining his own pockets with that as well as then eventually betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. They seem like a strange crew for Jesus to be deciding these are the people that we're going to send out and we're going to be telling people about the good news. It's almost as if you have a new product to launch. You're the chief executive of a company. You've just invented a product that is going to revolutionise the whole world. Everyone's going to want one of these products in your house. You need to launch it. You need to spread the word about it. What do you do? Well, hopefully you get your sales director or your product development officer or someone who knows something about it to do a big launch of it. You don't get the office junior or the T-boy to go out and spread the word about it. But in some ways, this is what it feels like Jesus is doing here. He's taking this ragtag bunch of men to go and spread the most important message that's ever been heard. So why is he doing this? Well, what qualifications have they got? They probably didn't have any formal religious training, but what they did have was three things. They had the fact that they had received the good news himself. We'd heard earlier uh, in one of Richmond's, Richard's sermons that they were told by Jesus to come, they were asked to come and follow him. He walked past as they were fishing, the fishermen there, and he said, follow me, and they left their nets and went and followed him. Levi, the tax collector, probably hated by many of the people around them because he would be lining his pockets as well. Jesus came to him and said, follow me. And he left what he was doing and followed Jesus. They'd accepted the good news and taken it into their own hearts. And they'd followed him. They'd made that choice themselves. They'd received the good news. Jesus had been teaching them as well. Up until this point, um, there's not many chapters into Mark. They haven't been around Jesus for very much. But it tells us in earlier chapters that Jesus spent time teaching his disciples when they were alone together. 
and letting them know what the kingdom of God was all about and why he was coming. And they'd witnessed his power as well. Just in the few chapters that we've got to already, they've witnessed his power over death, people being raised to life again, his power over demon possession, people who have been taken over by demons and their minds affected by that. And the elements as well, he's shown his command over the weather as he calms the storm. So these disciples have seen a lot of what it meant to be around Jesus and what power he had and what message he had to give. But finally, we read here that he gives them authority. In verse 7, he sent them out and he gave them authority. They weren't going out in their own strength. They weren't going out in their own might, fortunately. They were going out under the authority of Jesus. So what did they have to tell? They had the good news. As Richard's reminding us, the Greek word, the euangelion, the good news that was proclaimed when the emperor had something to say about something that had actually happened, something that was good news, it it would be heralded. It would be sent out there into the land. And this was the good news that Jesus was sending out, something that actually happened, not just a new belief system, not just a new way of life, not just a new religion, but something that was actually happening, something that was real, something that was actually going to change lives. It also tells us here that they were to preach repentance. They were to preach a turning around, not just of somebody being sorry and saying sorry for something that they've done, but a repentance, a turning around to face what was to come, to face the kingdom of God that was so near. And not only that, not only words were they going to be speaking. He says that he gives them authority to cast out demons and to heal many sick people with oil as well. These were acts of compassion. These were deeds of mercy. It wasn't just words that the disciples were going out to speak here. They were going out to spread the good news in very practical ways as well. This was a good news that wasn't just going to affect people's souls, but it was going to affect their minds, and it was going to affect their hearts as well. And this is what Jesus was telling the disciples to go out and send out to do. So how did they prepare for this message that they were going to be sending out? Well, this is a picture of my car. No, it's not actually a picture of my car at all. But it's it's something that like what my car looks like when I go on holiday. I do like going on holiday in the UK, and that's mainly because I like to take just about everything with me. I do like my home comforts when I go on holiday, and therefore, if you travel in the UK, you can take your car with you, and you can pack just about everything that you can get into it. It doesn't quite look like that. I don't think I ever take a bed with me when I'm going. Um, But it pretty much does look like that when we go on holiday. This is the complete opposite to what Jesus is telling the disciples to prepare for here. Have you noticed what he says? Take a tunic. Don't take an extra one. It's going to get cold out there, but don't take an extra tunic with you. You can have a belt. Good. Uh, You can have a staff help you as you walk, maybe fend off some wild animals if you come across them, and some sandals. Not anything particularly grand, but something just to cover your feet so you're going to be able to cover the distance as you go around. No food, no bag, no money. And even when the money, when he was talking about the money, it wasn't like he was saying, look, don't take a big wadge of uh, 50s with you. The word for money in here, the Greek word, literally means small change. It was literally a few copper coins. He's saying... Don't even take any copper coins with you. Take nothing with you at all. 
There was no time to lose here. This was similar to back in the days of the Exodus when God's people would leave Egypt when they were under slavery. And as they had the Passover meal, they were to dress in exactly the same way. They were to have the Passover ready to leave. There was a sense of urgency about it. And there was the same sense of urgency here with this message that Jesus is preaching. He's sending the disciples out to preach. It's good news. And the kingdom of God is near. There was something to be very hurried about it. And it was also to mean that disciples were to rely totally on God themselves. They weren't to rely on their own uh, items that they would take with them to pack big rucksacks with lots of food with them, with lots of clothing, with things that would keep them sustained. They were to go out only in the power of God and to, pro- uh, to have him provide for them as they went out. A total reliance on God in the same way that the children of Israel had to rely on God as they wandered around the wilderness following their exodus from Egypt. But what were they allowed to do? They were allowed to go in twos. Why did they go out in twos? Well, as much as anything else, probably for a bit of mutual support, perhaps mutual skill sets as well. Maybe you send out a fisherman with a tax collector. I don't know what you get out of that. Maybe you send out a zealot with a, with a thief. I don't know what you get out of that either. But to have a bit of uh, mutual support for each other as they went on their journey together. But also, back in the Old Testament, it tells us Uh, especially within a court of law, that it was really important that there was more than one witness to an event as well. Remember, this is a time before newspapers, this is a time before the internet, a time before word gets spread very quickly around. So if these disciples are going out and witnessing to the good news of Christ and the kingdom of God coming, to go out in twos mean that they give testimony together of what they've seen and what they've heard. And that would stand up more for those people around them that would hear it to have a witness of two people that went out together. So they went out in pairs to support each other there. And finally, from their point of view, what did they expect as they went out? Well, Jesus tells them that not everybody is going to welcome you. Verse 11, if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. He's saying, basically, not everyone's going to want to hear this message of good news that you've got. It's interesting, if you go back literally the few lines before our passage here, we find Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth, a place where you would think he'd have home advantage, a place where you'd think everything would be uh, accepted that he said, but actually, that's the place where he said they won't accept. They won't accept the news that I've got to bring, the good news that I'm bringing even in his hometown here. And he said, as you go out, people won't necessarily accept what you've got to hear. We've heard last week the parable of the sower, some of the seed, some of the good news that falls on the path and the birds come and just snatch it away before it has time to go anywhere near people's hearts. Not everyone is going to receive it. And it's quite a radical message that he gives to them. Shake off your clothes. Shake off the dust from your feet if you come across a place where that isn't going to accept the message that you give. In uh, the ancient Near East, it would have been uh, a pious Jew if he left the Holy Land and he left and went out to what would be known as Gentile lands and came back again in order to cleanse himself and not be defiled. 
he would literally, as he crossed the boundary and came back into his own land again, he would shake out his clothing, he would shake out the dust of the Gentile, of the heathen land, so that he wasn't defiled as he came back again. And this was Jesus essentially saying to the disciples, if you go somewhere and they don't accept what we have to say, if you don't accept the good news of the kingdom of God coming, essentially by shaking out your clothing like that, you're treating them and you're telling them that they're actually heathens. This good news is for all. It's not just for the children of Israel. It's not just for a select bunch of people anymore. This is going to be for everyone. And if you're not going to accept it, then somebody else is going to accept it instead. So it was quite a harsh thing to be saying. And secondly, even for those that received, they weren't to show favoritism at all. There's an interesting little line in here that we can sometimes miss. Whenever uh, you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town which seems like a kind of an obvious thing to say. But it was basically saying there wasn't to be any favoritism with this good news that we were spreading about, the disciples were spreading about here. If you went to a town and you went and stayed at the first person that accepted you and accepted the good news, if someone further down the street who was a little bit more wealthy and a little bit more well-off suddenly decided, actually, this good news that's now being talked about in the town, actually, I think I want a little bit of that as well. Perhaps I'll have the disciples come and stay with me and give them hospitality instead. Jesus said, no, not to do that. There's to be no favoritism around here. The gospel isn't about uh, preaching it to the most wealthy or to those with the highest status. It's about giving it to everybody. As soon as you're welcomed into a town, you stay with that person until you leave the town. It's not about status. It's not about wealth. It's not about sharing it with select groups of people. It's the good news for everybody. So what's this story? What's this good news message that's being spread around? How do we apply that to us today? Well, one thing to say is, this passage from Scripture is not a how to share the good news in 2015. I don't think you can take this passage and go word for word and say, this is the way we should be sharing the good news with those around us today. For instance, if you go out and you take a friend out to a coffee shop and you don't take any money with you when you go and you don't take a coat with you or anything like that, you're going to turn up freezing and they're going to end up paying for the coffee. I don't think that's what Jesus was saying here in terms of not being prepared there. So there are some things we have to be careful about uh, making a direct reference to. But there are some things, I think, that we can pick up from here. Firstly, who can share the good news? We've got these disciples that we've looked at thinking maybe these are not the people that we have picked as the ideal people to share the good news, to share the gospel with. But who have we got today? We've got ourselves. Do we need a theology degree? No. Do we need lots of training? No. Do we need to have been on many courses? No. Do you need to have read your Bible from front to back? Not a bad thing, but no. Jesus wants to use us in whatever state we are. All he asks is that we're people that have received the good news for ourselves, that have taken that good news into our hearts and want to share it with others, regardless of what state on our faith journey we might be at. For some of us, we might have been Christians for many, many years. For others, we might be really new on our faith journey. It doesn't matter. The good news is the same. The good news of God's salvation, of God's love for us, is exactly the same. And he wants us to be able to share that with those around us. 
in the same way that the disciples were given authority by Jesus to share the good news. We have the same authority. We have the power of the Holy Spirit within us to be able to share that good news, that euangelion, the proclamation of God's love to those around us. You know, each of us is unique. We all have a specific situation that God has placed us in. None of us are exactly the same. Only you will be placed in a particular work situation, in a particular family situation, in a particular street, in a particular club, in a particular group of friends. And that's where God has placed you to be, to spread the good news of his love wherever we are. It doesn't take qualifications. It doesn't take training. It simply takes receiving the good news ourselves and sharing that with others. How do we prepare for that? Well, similarly to the disciples, we need to depend on God, purely and simply. We're not doing this in our own strength. It tells us in 2 Corinthians that his grace is sufficient for us. His power is made perfect in our weakness. When we feel weak, that's when we are strong through God. But we can find support from others in the same way that the disciples went out in twos. Having support from others is really important. Not necessarily practically as we go out and as we share the good news with others, but to pray with each other, to be accountable to each other as we share the good news and we live it out with those around us. To actually know that we're not alone as we do this. And what are we telling? We're telling a good news that changes people's hearts and minds. Hopefully that's what we've experienced ourselves in the love of Christ that's come down to earth for us. It's something that changes hearts, it changes minds, it changes lives. And that's something that we should be ever ready to share with others. But just with the disciples, as it wasn't just words, it doesn't have to be just words with us as well. This gospel can take very practical forms as well. Meeting people where their needs are, whether that be at a food bank, whether that be providing clothing for those that need it, whether that be with your neighbour who's going through a hard time at the moment with a relationship, looking after someone's kids for them while they go out and do something, looking after the older person on your street which you know don't, doesn't have any company for five or six days of the week, showing God's love in practical ways to those around us, spreading God's news spreading God's good news in practical ways through that. So, as we finish, let's just reflect on what God might be speaking to us this morning. Let's just take a moment of quiet as we finish. Mark, perhaps uh, you and the band would like to come up as we get ready to sing a final song. But let's just have a moment and ask God just to speak to us from what we've heard this morning. It might be this morning that this is your first time about even hearing the good news or you know that at the moment you're not in a place ready to receive the good news for yourself. Maybe that's God 
is wanting to speak into our hearts this morning about receiving his love and accepting that for ourselves in a personal way for the first time today. It may be that you're finding that at this moment in life, although you've received the good news for yourself, you're in a place where you're finding it very difficult at the moment to cling on to that faith because of circumstances in your life. And that's fine, and God wants to encourage us this morning that he is there for us. He's there to support us through the dark times. He's there to carry us through. And that's fine. We just need to hold on to our faith, to hold on to what God has for us. And it might be that God's encouraging us this morning to share that good news with others around us in our life, whether that be in our workplace, in our street, with our friends, with our families, with our neighbours, with whoever that might be, whether it be in words, sharing our testimony of what it means to know God's love, or whether it means with acts of compassion and deeds of mercy to those around us, sharing his good news in practical ways. feel that's something that God is placing on your heart this morning we've got an opportunity after the service in our prayer area over here Catherine and, and Deborah and others will be over there and we'd love to just pray with you if you feel there's something that you really just want to pray about this morning it might not be anything particularly major or anything particularly specific just want somebody to pray a prayer of blessing with you then please feel free to come over at the end of the service grab a coffee and just come over and spend some quiet time over there in prayer together. We just sing one more song to finish with before we go. Thanks, Mark. <laughs>